1: Hi and welcome to Theology Gals. I am Colleen Sharp, and my co-host is Angela Whitehorn. She is not the invisible co-host; she's the very real co-host. Um, <laughs> only recently did we go on like all the social media, and and even if you look on Theology Gals on whatever you're listening on, it should now say Colleen Sharp. And it should say Angela, Ashley Glassick and Angela Whitehorn, but we'd get emails like, "You and Ashley like on an episode Angela's in." So we have a little joke that Angela is the invisible co-host, but she's now—I'm she's <laughs> not
0: even here. I'm just a That's figure right. of your imagination.
1: <laughs> That's right. A friend of mine that is a dispensationalist, and I, I won't say his name, called me this week about our episode from last week. And uh, it, it was not all complaints, uh, this is good, but he said that, I think on a couple things he said, well, that wasn't his experience, specifically on the imputation. He said he always heard about that. And I think the thing is, with dispensationalism, when we're discussing dispensationalists, that there's going to be a wide range. You know, there's different kinds of dispensationalists, some guys on, uh, Twitter were not very happy with us and completely misunderstood something I said. I had talked about my dispensationalist family who do not believe in baptism or the Lord's Supper, but that is a very specific type of dispensationalist. It's an extreme type that is not the typical. Uh, so I just thought I'd mention a couple of things like that. We were definitely not saying that was true of dispensationalists as a whole.
0: Right. And I think um, something that Rob tried to convey in the episode is that there are a lot of different stripes of dispensationalism, a lot of different types and flavors, and that um, he was just doing his best to represent what he would consider the broadest view, um, the views most held to, the most common. So certainly we know that we could not personally represent each each person's dispensational view, um, and there are a lot of
1: them. Right. And you know, when I read Brian Thomas's book, Wittenberg versus Geneva, which was about Lutheran and Reformed theology, there was something in there that I right away shot off an email and said, That's not true. And <laughs> it had to do with it, he said something about most Reformed churches only have communion once a month. And I'm like, Okay, wait. I've never been in a Reformed church that only has communion once a month. And, you know, and I told him that. And he said that he had called different Reformed churches, and most of them were that. And so that's, I think, something like that. And so there's always going to be things that are going to differ. I mean, I see things all the time about Reformed churches, and even Reformed churches differ. Even Reformed churches that hold to the regulative principle of worship differ. Right. I don't think that everything that we said is necessarily going to be true for all dispensationalists unless the basic unless the basic understanding of dispensationalism. So, right. So tonight we are going to talk about something and I think in some ways this has come out of discussions in the group because of Rachel Hollis's book and other things which have come out of that. And I would say also in our discernment episode. And so we started talking, there was some things in our group and we said, you know what, we just need to do an episode on this. And that is something that is called moralistic therapeutic deism. Now that might be a new term for some of you. So we're going to talk about what it is in the background of where the term came from and this isn't just something that's in broad American culture, but it really is a part of evangelicalism overall, and I probably more specifically American evangelicalism. I'm not as well-versed on what happens in those circles across the globe, so but I'm sure that there's some of it all around the world. And Some of you, I'm going to put some things in the episode links. Michael Horton is somebody who's talked about this quite a bit, and it's definitely a theme in his book, Christless Christianity. I highly, highly recommend the book, Christless Christianity. So what is moralistic therapeutic deism? Where did it come from, Angela?
0: Well, um, the term um, was first introduced um, by some sociologists named Christian Smith and Melissa Melinda Lundquist Denton, and um, they wrote about this moralistic therapeutic deism in their book *Soul Searching: The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers*. And this was in two thousand and five. And so they did a lot of research on what um, American teenagers believe and came out with a body of beliefs and termed it Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. Um, the research project that they conducted was called the National Study of Youth and Religion.
1: You know, what's interesting is one thing that I did this week, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but I looked at recent surveys and I found some, some kind of overlap between what they found and even questions on surveys to evangelicals,
0: yeah. Well, and you know, keep in mind this was done in 2005. That's when the book came out, and I'm I'm certain that their research sort of had to predate that some, so that they could have the research completed. And so these were teenagers at the time, and right. we're, you know, we're 13 or more years past their research. So these these um, kids are definitely adults now, um, right? So they'd be participating in surveys now, possibly.
1: Right. And there was, I believe, a follow-up book that kind of talked about these people entering into Christianity. So we're going to go over and talk about the main points of what moralistic therapeutic deism is. And there's actually specific points, and I'll go over a few of them. Uh, The first one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. So this is... I really thought as I was doing this episode, a lot of some of my reformed Jewish family, that even they would kind of fit into these same beliefs that there's a God that's out there and he's looking over, he's watching over things. Uh, God wants people to be good, to be nice and fair to each other, treat each other nice. Uh, You know, even the way that some of the Bible stories that you're in Sunday school or vacation Bible school, where sometimes the moral of the story has to do with being nice to each other and, and being good people. And the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. We saw a lot of that in, in Rachel Hollis's book. Mm-hmm. And God isn't necessarily particularly involved in your everyday life, except for when he's needed, you know, he's there. You can reach out to him. You have a problem. He's going to help you. And then the, the last one is that good people go to heaven when they die These were originally from a group of 3,000 teenagers. Now, one thing that's very interesting, I was listening to Michael Horton this week, and that is this wasn't just average teenagers, that these things were even more true if the teenagers grew up in church. And that's kind of disturbing.
0: I also did some listening to Horton this week. And, um, you know, what really kept coming to my mind was this phenomenon that we've seen I'd say over the last five years of, or so in sort of the evangelical world, research, books, blogging, um, where lots of people are talking about the nuns who respond to surveys and say that they have no religion, but they grew up in the church. They've left the church. There's that terminology of de-churched. And there's been a lot of talk about what are, what can we change? What can we do so that they don't leave? And you know, what's really interesting to me is looking at this list of things, this list of beliefs that this same crowd of people believed before dechurching and leaving. I, I read this and I think this is contrary to what the Bible teaches Christianity
1: is. So so that crowd, I don't think we ever had them
0: in the first place.
1: Yeah. There's been a lot of focus and I remember it from the time of, of the eighties and the nineties. How can we get people to be excited about church? How can we get them to stay? And I think in the 80s, we had the worship wars. So Mm -hmm. people wanted to come in, wanted to make worship new and exciting. We're going to do skits up in front on Sunday morning, and we're going to have a band (laughs) (laughs) instead of the organ and hymns. And we're going to do all of these things. And following that was the Willow Creek
0: era. Right. The The church growth
1: movement. Right. And the Willow Creek Association grew and all of that. And then I think I'm not sure when it really started, but then you have the campus model where you have the church is centered around this one pastor. Mark Driscoll would be a good example of this. And since we can't come and make more Mark Driscolls, what we'll do is we will uh, video it into different campuses so we have Mark Driscoll doing it, but they they realize the huge thing didn't work. We need smaller churches, but we still got to center it around this personality. Now you have people moving away from that, but they're always trying to do something new that's going to keep them there, that's going to make them want to be at church. Yeah, I, and I think that
0: um, that whole uh, campus model thing is is really relates to there being you know you look at that and a, a lot of the time the main person who's on the big screen at all the campuses is a really charismatic personality, very magnetic and um, exciting or interesting to listen to. And it really relates to me um, to this sort of therapeutic aspect of the moralistic therapeutic deism. We've got a quote here within this moralistic therapeutic deism religion, God is a cosmic therapist and divine butler ready to help out when needed. He exists, but really isn't a part of our lives. We're supposed to be good people, but each person must find what's right for him or her. Good people will go to heaven and we shouldn't be stifled by organized religion where somebody tells us what we should do or what we should believe. And I I just think about that very exciting speaker and the therapeutic aspect of of hearing something that gets me fired up and that gets me um, excited about whatever it is that's being discussed.
1: Yeah. You know, you reminded me, I remember when I was probably about 19 years old and was walking out of church with a couple of friends and the conversation this particular day was almost life changing for me. And one of them said, I didn't really get much out of that worship. And the other one said, you know, I, re- I didn't really get much out of the sermon. And it just really hit me like, why why are we here? Why are we here at church? Are we here at church to get something out of the music time? Are we here at church to get a motivational talk to, to keep us through the week, you know? Or are we here at church to worship God? And I really... I really spent a lot of time thinking about that, and I think it really does come from this same idea in what you were saying. I mean, God exists for what we can benefit, what, what I can get from God. There's no talk of sin and need for a Savior.
0: Right, and I, I just keep thinking to compare this to what we think of as the means of grace, we know that the Lord is serving us through his appointed means of the ministry of word and sacrament. And it's really not about whether or not I left feeling like I, it did something. This is where faith right. actually becomes a part of the equation is that I trust and receive Christ. And I trust that his appointed means are doing what he has appointed them to do. And that is to grow me in his grace And I have to trust that whether I feel like it's doing something or not.
1: Right. And, you know, this is a really good segue. One of the things we wanted to talk about is ways in which we see this in modern evangelicalism and just kind of go through some main points. And the first one I wanted to talk about is worship. And what you were just talking about right there, instead of worship being about worshiping the God who has saved us, it is about what do i get out of it a lot of times worship is seen as the time of singing instead of right. the entire worship service i mean we have the preached word as a means of grace that the lord uses that is part of of the worship service from the call to worship to the benediction it is all worship and um, the sacraments and the the prayers and the singing it is all our corporate worship. What we see now is worship is about me and what I get out of it, mm-hmm. right? And and it's it's about how it makes me feel, right? When you were talking about Angela, that even even if I don't feel anything, you know, I I think sometimes there are people that are more maybe just emotional. Just as people, I tend to be a more emotional person, but I had a friend who just isn't a super emotional person that says, I just don't experience a lot of things, you know, but she's very aware of, of the Lord's work.
0: Right. And it, it just, it reminds me that, you know, the means of grace as they are being um, given in the service don't require to me, me to be emotionless. You know, we're, we're not saying that emotion is wrong. We are to um, have affection um, for the Lord. At the same time, um, emotion is not our measure of whether or not worship was happening. Um, we worship according to the way the Lord has commanded, and that's our measure of whether or not worship is happening and whether or not His means are working. We trust that they are
1: right we should just quickly for those who have not listened to our episode on the regulative principle of worship i will put it in the episode note it notes if that is a new idea to you when we say that we worship the way that the lord has commanded that's how we measure what worship is is that within scripture god has told us how we are to worship him and one a lot of what happened with the church growth movement and finding you know, more entertainment focused worship service is that people were making up ways. I'm going to worship God however I want to worship God instead of looking to God's word and saying, God has told us how we are to worship him with a preached right. word, with praying, with singing of hymns and psalms, with um, the administering of the sacraments, that these are things which are in worship, the call to worship and the benediction, that these are elements that the Lord has told us are part of how we worship him.
0: Right. And so just thinking about how the entire service, just like you said, from the call to worship to the benediction, the entire service is worship. Another thing that I love about reformed liturgy is that the entire service is to be about the gospel, Both the law and the gospel will be preached. We sing the gospel. We recite parts of the gospel. We listen to the law and the gospel preached. And this is a major thing that can be missing from types of services that are leaning more towards this moralistic therapeutic deism. There may be no sin and no grace, or there's no law and gospel throughout the entire service.
1: Right. And a lot of times in Reformed churches, you will have the preaching of the law and the gospel, and you will have a corporate confession of sin and an absolution Mm -hmm. where the pastor reminds the congregation that you are forgiven because of what Christ has done. And I I love that there is within the liturgy, that same sort of thing that I know that I'm going to hear the law and the gospel, that there's going to be confession and absolution. When we stop making worship about God and what God says worship is, and we make worship about us, then we're going to worship however we want instead of worshiping in the way that God has said that he is to be worshiped. He is the God of the universe who saved us even while we were yet sinners. And we should, we should worship him and we should worship him in the ways that he has told us to worship him. Exactly. So let's move on in a lot of churches. And let me just remind you, because we're going to get to some of the statistics, and they they made me very sad when I read them this week. This is not just in liberal churches. This is a lot of times in a typical evangelical church down the street. I heard some stories just this very week. So one of the things you and I talked about, Angela, was the preaching of the gospel, In some of these churches, and I I had mentioned to you, and I think you had some similar experiences, that there was a church that I would visit sometimes with my friends as a teenager. And they would say, if your marriage is bad, come to Jesus. If uh, your children are rebellious, come to Jesus. If you're depressed, come to Jesus. So the gospel presentation was, come to Jesus so he makes your life better. So it's not come to Jesus because you're a sinner in need of a Savior, but because He's going to improve your life.
0: Right. I even sort of remember at times hearing people talk about how it's it's really hard to share the gospel with people whose lives are going well because they don't have anything going on to make them need Jesus, which, you know, when I think about that is really sad because the truth is if someone's life is going well, they're still a sinner. They need the law to show them that they need Jesus. It's not about that their house is great. They have a great job. They have their 2.5 kids and a dog. It, those are not the things that show us that we need Christ. It's the law and, and showing us how far we are from being able to keep His law. And
1: that's what we need a Savior for. Right. And the message within moralistic therapeutic deism is that we're we're all pretty good people. You know, it's only some people who are serial killers or murderers. Okay. <laughs> right. Most of us, I, I'm not really a bad person. I mean, I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery. I love my children. I'm faithful to my husband. I go to church every Sunday. I, uh, I volunteer at the soup kitchen. So I, I'm I'm really not a bad person. I'm a pretty good person. Um, I know Ray Comfort does a thing where you ask somebody, so you're a good person. He'll be like, so have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? Well, there you've broken a commandment. Have you lusted after someone? Because Jesus says, if you've lusted, then it's the same as adultery. So there you're an adulterer. If you go through the Ten Commandments and you know that, like we talked about last week, that if you've hated anybody, you're guilty of murder. Right. If you've lusted. I was just thinking about yeah. You're guilty of adultery. We are all blasphemous, adulterous murderers that steal, you know, and (laughs) covet. So are we really, I've never murdered anybody or committed adultery or um, anything like that, but I have broken all of God's laws.
0: Right. And so this is one of the um, basic problems with moralistic therapeutic theism is that it either has no view of God's law or a very low view of God's law.
1: One thing that's interesting is a friend of mine reading some clips from Rachel Hollis's book. Sorry to keep bringing it up, but it's been in my mind. She said to me, this is all law. And what's interesting is because there it is all law in a way, try harder, do better. That That's not gospel, that's law. Um, but but the difference being in moralistic therapeutic deism, there is law. there There is a sort of law. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do better, love people more, those sorts of things. But there's also this idea that it's okay that you fall short. God loves you just the way you are. Right. You're right. okay. You're still a good person. You're still going to heaven.
0: It's really interesting. It sort of comes across to me as though it essentially – Erases justification or a need for justification, and focuses only on
1: sanctification. That's a great point. Makes me think of Charles Finney. Uh, <laughs> Charles Finney had just uh, such a wacky theology. He said Christ's death could only justify himself, and um, which is crazy. And the purpose of Christ was to live an example, but in that. Theology—that's really the way that a lot of Americans see Jesus. You know, what would Jesus do? Was the big Mm -hmm. obsession a few years ago. It's all about being a better person. But these people that say, "What would Jesus do?" a lot of the time, having a clue, having a clue what Scripture says. If you, if (laughs) right, um, you need Jesus to go you know, for salvation and Islam isn't going to save you, they'll say, well, that's mean and judgmental. Jesus wouldn't be judgmental. And so you really have no understanding of scripture and the word of God.
0: Right. That saying really should be, what would my conception of Jesus do?
1: That's right. That's which is
0: a God made in our own image, which is ultimately a reflection of yourself.
1: Yep, that's that's exactly it, and that's what we do. We make God in our own image, Mm -hmm. how we think we should be. Okay, so I have a little joke, and probably, and I just told it tonight, so that's why it's on my mind. It has to do with what would Jesus do. So I'll just throw it in there. I'm not the best joke teller. Take it
0: away. Take it away.
1: She'll be here all week, folks. <laughs> so these the mom is making pancakes for her two sons, and they're fighting over who gets the first pancake. And so the mom says, "Well, you know what Jesus would do?" He would think of his brother first, so one brother turns to the other and says, "You be Jesus." <laughs> <laughs> This
0: sounds like my
1: kids. (laughs) Okay. Can you tell I'm a mom? That's like a favorite (laughs) joke.
0: Mom jokes. That's
1: right. You be Jesus. (laughs) On the what would Jesus do? You be Jesus. (laughs) I know that Rod, uh, my brother-in-law's dad, would say, the question isn't what would Jesus do, but what has Jesus done? A- and right. why? Why did Jesus need to die on the cross? You know, I don't think that 2005 is when this was new or now in broader Christianity, because I think back to the when the White Horson went to the Christian Book Distributors Convention and asked people, what is the gospel? And in a hundred people, so few people even use Jesus in their description of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the gospel is a good news okay what, what the good news about what that that we should love god that god loves us or you know these sorts of things a lot of these same people will say of course i believe the bible's true you know they'll, they'll right. absolutely believe that but they don't really have any understanding of what scripture is about uh the law and the gospel
0: right it, it's interesting talking about you know Essentially, getting the gospel wrong and and turning it into um, whatever we want. I came across um, a post on social media from a a very famous evangelical uh, woman writer, and her post um, gives a list of things that um, she believes. She was kind of upset about some things, and uh, she often is. And she wrote a long list of some things that were very political, and then closed her post by saying. Uh, she's talking about what she believes. She believes we have a better story to write together than the divided, contentious, fear-based example we see in the culture right now. We can do better. We are better than this. The thing is, this is the only way I understand the gospel. I cannot come to any other conclusion than this path laid out for us by Jesus. She's defining the gospel as something that we do. We know that this is at best... A law gospel confusion, and at worst, a false gospel. The gospel is not what we do, the gospel is what Christ has done for us.
1: And it makes me think of a quote from Rachel Hollis's book that we had read where she's talking about people judging. Uh, that I have the only way and, and that they do this within religion, thinking that their religion is the only way. And she says that the main tenet of her faith is loving your brother or lo- loving your neighbor. Right. And, but that's actually not the main tenet of our faith. The main tenet of our faith is um, loving God and our neighbor and what Christ has done for us, for a sinful people, saving a sinful people from their sins. And so and a lot of times they've redefined love. So love is now accept everybody however they want to be accepted. Mm -hmm. It's not judge right from wrong as we're called to do from scripture. And we talked about in our discernment episode. It's not find out what is true and false. But but just love everybody. And it's a very fluffy, it's not, it's not a real love because a real love says, okay, my brother is a sinner in need of a savior. And I'm going to go and tell him that Christ is his only hope for salvation. Right. So what, what about music, music in, in Christian moralistic therapeutic deism? What do we see? What have we seen kind of with the music that's out there?
0: Well, a lot of times what I see is two things. A lot of music that ends up being a a lot more about me and my struggle than about what Jesus has done for us. And then um, the second thing that I see really is sort of a romanticized version of Jesus where ultimately Jesus ends up being my boyfriend. And of course, both of these are highly problematic. and. Not worshipful,
1: right? If you can take change just a few words of a worship song and it would be appropriate for your boyfriend, that's probably not a great worship song. You look at some of the just even read the Psalms. Uh, you know, we should be singing both the Psalms and the Hymns. If we're not, it, believe in exclusively Psalms, we should be singing the Psalms and the Hymns, and they're just so rich and so many of the Hymns just full of just such great doctrine and a proclamation of what Christ has done. I went through when we did the episode with Amy Spreeman, cause I had no idea what Bethel music was or Hillsong and read some of the words. And I, I was just, uh, floored almost at some of the mm-hmm, words.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some of, some of the language even to me approaches erotic and highly inappropriate. Um, just not worshipful. Um, and so it's very important that our music is grounded in the Word of God, um, grounded in what the Bible tells us God is like. You know, I think the way that this relates to the moralistic therapeutic deism is back to that therapeutic part that Jesus can help you with whatever is wrong in your life. So if it's the lack of a relationship, well, Jesus is a relationship,
1: um, right? And and even it's all about me because it's to make me feel better. Exactly. Uh, John Christ has this funny little video where he's saying, Okay, girls, stop saying you're dating Jesus. Of course, I didn't really know this was a thing, but after reading the <laughs> words to some of these um, songs, <laughs> maybe this is a thing. I think it is a thing. <laughs> and of course, he says, Jesus is way out of your league. <laughs> it's true. Right. You, you are not dating Jesus. and But it it all is the same sort of thing. So it's got that therapeutic element it's to make me feel good. And even when we were talking about worship, where it's all about me, it's intended to um, bring about a certain emotion. On the episode about NAR, New Apostolic Reformation, one of the things we talked about with Amy is there even ways of the actual music That is intended, there's something called whole tones, and that is intended to bring about a certain emotion Mm -hmm. that is used in some of these, in some of this music. And when I was in high school, I dated a guy that was very big into drama and he really wanted to, I think, be on Broadway one day or something like that. And he really knew a lot about music. And a lot about film, and he went to a church event. And he grew up Catholic, and he went to a church event, and he really knew, um, like he worked. He was in the drama club. I mean, it's very smart guy, and really understood a lot about how music was used when they did plays, uh, how music was used in um, movies and stuff like that. And so he went to this church, and they had the altar call afterwards, and the music and stuff, and. He said, "Do you realize that that the music that they were playing is intended to bring about an emotion that that causes somebody to want to respond? Mm-hmm. So it, it's music being used in a very manipulative way."
0: Absolutely, and I, you know, I don't know if I think some people don't realize that that's that's possible. But if you think about like a, a suspense type of movie, the soundtrack that's playing underneath is definitely contributing to that nervous feeling that moving the plot along. You can even hear it. If you listen to the soundtrack without the movie going, you can possibly even guess what point in the movie that music goes with. And that is because music does convey emotion to us and it gets our emotions involved. And so um, they certainly are aware of this. Of course, in the NAR, as they write, write music and they write it in those certain ways to, conjure an emotional response, an emotional connection to the music. And it really becomes almost like a drug, you know, you need that. Um, I don't know, is it dopamine? You need that hit of that hormone that comes out that makes you happy. Right. And the music does it and they know that it does. It's, it's, um, it can be manipulation.
1: Yeah, and I absolutely experience emotions just listening to any sort of music. Oh, yes. I love classical music. You and I have talked about how mm-hmm. there are certain points in certain classical songs that, I mean, it just brings about amazing emotions. Yes. It's so beautiful.
0: I think if you can listen to the final chorus of St. Matthew's Passion and not cry, there is something wrong with you.
1: Right. And there's there's songs um, that I feel that way about too. Mozart's Requiem. And yes, I know we're talking about Catholic music here, but there's parts of some of that music is just so incredibly beautiful. So we know that uh, that music brings about emotion. When Angela was talking, you know, they, they have that music in a, in a scary movie, building up to the actual scary part. So before you ever get to the scary part, you know it's coming. Your mm-hmm. your um, heart starts racing quickly. You know when is somebody going to jump out of the closet? And now if you turned the music off and just watched it, it would be completely different That's without right. the music. But really when we're talking about music in church, it's going to go back to the regulative principle of worship. What is the purpose of it? It is for worshiping the Lord. Mm -hmm. And we want words that do that and honor him. So the other thing is sermons within this. And this is very, I think everyone has seen this sort of thing where it's, you know, 10 steps to a better you where there's no law and gospel in the sermon. It is, it is all how you can do better how you can improve your marriage. Um, not that those things won't come from a sermon. There, mm-hmm. It may be very appropriate to the text that's being preached that you may have you know, some tips for a better marriage. But this is more self-help than it is, here is what the Word of God says. Here right. is what the Word of God says about how to be an obedient wife or obedient husband and, in, and doing so in view of what the Lord has done for you.
0: And I think about this too as well um, when it relates to a lot of times the way in broader evangelicalism, especially Old Testament characters, are um, talked about and preached about as you know an example for us to follow, dare to be a David, whatever it is. You can lead better, better um, run your company better by reading about Joshua and how was he a great leader. Um, these sorts of things are, even even though they are appear to be an approach to the text. I think I, comp- I I contrast that to reformed preaching, where there is this historical redemptive hermeneutic that teaches us that we should preach Christ from all of Scripture. All of Scripture is about Him and about the Lord's plan of redemption. So so how this works out, and this is something that I love at my church, every week, <laughs> I'm going to tell on myself a little, every week we go to church and um, the sermon starts. And I start at the beginning a little nervous. And I think, am I going to hear the five special principles out of this? that I'm supposed to apply apply to myself on how I can be better. Because I've sat under a lot of preaching like that. And every week it gets finished and I have a sigh of relief because Christ was preached from the passage, no matter what the passage was. And it's just massively different than making every passage about how can your life be better. Let's take a look at these characters and
1: what did they do right that we can emulate. So that we can have a better, more successful life and happier life instead of when we do get uh, some practical application from the sermon, it's in view of, we always talk, we always want to remember the why of obedience. We, Mm -hmm. We live in obedience to the Lord because of what he has done for us and because he is working in us, not to have a better life. In fact, when you come to Christ, you might have suffering. We know Mm -hmm. that from scripture. In fact, you probably will. We know things like we're supposed to count it all joy when we encounter various trials because of what it produces inside of us, because the Lord uses it for good. And so coming to Christ does not mean your life is now going to be easier and better, but you are now going to live your life with a hope and with a joy because of the Lord's work in you.
0: Exactly. This reminds me of something that you and I were discussing earlier this week about um, going back to that style of gospel presentation that comes out of this that may or may not actually be a gospel presentation, um, where you you know approach someone that's got a hard life and you tell them, hey, come to church w- with me. Jesus can make you feel better. Jesus can help you. Uh, have a better life. And let's say the person is convinced and comes with you. What happens months down the road when things aren't actually better? Because just as you said, because we are promised suffering. We are not promised an easy life. We are not promised that um, Christ will fix all of our temporal problems here. And so what happens is that people get disillusioned and they, they think Christianity failed me. It must be false.
1: And I've run into people who say, I tried
0: Christianity.
1: Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I tried Christianity and it didn't work for me. But instead, and this is so important, the, mes- the real message that scripture gives us is that we are sinners who have sinned against a holy God. We have broken every commandment, even if we think we're pretty good people. And that Christ came and obeyed the law perfectly and died on the cross. And those who trust in him and have saving faith in him, they're forgiven and they're clothed in his righteousness as if they had obeyed the law perfectly. Not just washed white as snow, but it's as if you obey the law perfectly when we're clothed in his righteousness. And when we go through those hard times... We have the Lord. He is always with us. He is faithful to us. He comforts us in difficult times. So are there ways in which it does make a difficult marriage easier? Yes, because I trust in Him. But it's not a promise that your difficult marriage will be better. But it is a promise that the Lord will be with you.
0: That's right. And it's a hope of of a future that we have with the Lord in eternity in the new heavens and the new earth that is when all of our earthly problems will be resolved. All of the effects of sin in our life on earth will be resolved. But now, for now, we have pain, we have suffering, we have the effects of sin that we still live with.
1: And you know what? We have a hope that one day there will be no more suffering. Mm -hmm. And I think about that often. In case you think, well, I haven't seen this. This isn't in my church. Ligonier and Lifeway did a state of the church survey, and they talked with a lot of evangelicals just to kind of find out where where are people at, what do they believe, and I think that a lot of the answers that we're going to see here really. Uh, proves that this is a major problem within American Christianity. And so, yeah, we're talking a little bit more specifically about American Christianity. That's where the survey was. And so the first one, 46% of these people, and they self-identified as evangelicals, agreed with the statement, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Forty six percent. This isn't just all Americans. This is people who say I'm an evangelical.
0: Yeah. And this really, really reminds me of the Rachel Hollis quote that we talked about where um, she said, this is the day that the Lord has made and it doesn't matter who you worship. And she listed some of these religions. That is exactly moralistic therapeutic deism um, and of course, we know that God accepts the worship of His people um, because He accepts us on the basis of His Son. It, it does matter who you worship. You can worship the one true God, or <laughs> any of these other things are not worship of the one true God.
1: That none of none of those are going to save you from your sin, and really important is that within moralistic therapeutic deism, there's no law and gospel. There's no truth. We're all happy. God loves all of us. A good God wouldn't send anyone to hell, you know, as long as we're trying our best, living our best life now. So some of the other ones that I found interesting on here, and this is by people that call themselves evangelicals, is they said, by the good deeds that I do, I partly contribute to earning my place in heaven, 36%. And that might not sound like a huge amount, but these are people who say, yes, I'm an evangelical Christian. And and 36% of those think that that their good deeds are helping to earn some place in heaven.
0: That is just heartbreaking to me because um, it's incompatible with justification by faith alone which we believe that only our faith, um, which even that is given to us by the Lord, our faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done is what gives us our place in heaven. There's no contributing and there's no earning the the place in heaven. It's Christ alone.
1: I mean, that's the very heart of the gospel right there. Justification by faith alone. A couple of these just make me a little bit sad. And I, yeah, I'm not, I'll I'll go ahead and say what they are and we can discuss them. But 52%, and this is again, people who call themselves evangelicals, only 52% said sex outside of marriage is a sin. And only 48% said abortion is a sin. Now, those just seem like such obvious things to me. But I think earlier you were talking about even our view of sin. And the law is off. And so when we have a wrong view of sin and the law, then we're going to have a a wrong view of our need for Christ.
0: Right. You know, when we have a low view of God's law, then what we're doing is um, a couple of things. We're reducing God's law down to something that is achievable, um, something that we think that we are able to keep. And then by implication, we are raising up our own ability, which is something that happens um, in moralistic therapeutic deism because there's that basic belief that people are good. Everyone is basically good. Um, It it reminds me a little bit about the Heidelberg Catechism, the way that it's organized. We keep talking about law and gospel. The Heidelberg is organized into guilt, grace, and gratitude. So that third section, gratitude, is what we do in response. Once we have received the gospel, we're resting um, on Christ alone for our salvation. Then we turn in gratitude. We have repentance. We love the law. Um, We use that third use of the law for the rule for our life.
1: Yeah, we should love the Lord. We love Him because He first loved us and because He gave Himself for us. You know, we, we asked in the group, for some examples of where they've seen moralistic therapeutic deism. And we wanted to just talk about a couple of those and one of them, and I see this around a lot. I know you see it around a lot. I am enough. What do you think? I oh, am enough.
0: I see it everywhere. I see it. Um, yeah, definitely, um, it's a thing that I see lots of um, professing Christian women say. It's a, it's a thing that is preached to moms so much, and you know, there's a, there's a way in which you know, as a mom, I definitely need to be told, rest in the Lord, trust Him, do do your best, but your best is is um, all you can do, you know. But I am enough. The way that that gets told and repeated, it's slightly different. It has a little bit of a different flavor. It is talking about how you unto yourself are good enough. I've even seen it described and defined as whatever it is that you're doing is good. You're enough. You're exactly the right kind of mom. You're exactly who your kids need. And you know, There are plenty of times when, for me, that is not true. I'm not doing a good job. I'm not doing, uh, I'm not being patient with my kids. Um, I'm not uh, taking the opportunity that I should sometimes to teach them because it's hard. But what I do is I look to Christ and I trust Him to use my feeble attempts. I trust Him to work. His gospel in their hearts, and I pray that He would allow the gospel to take root in their hearts, and I trust that. It has nothing to do with whether or not I'm enough.
1: So instead of, because you and I both have young moms that come to us and they're struggling, and... When this I am enough, the emphasis that you're talking about, and I've uh, seen around a little bit, but I think maybe you having younger children probably see it a little bit more. There's no emphasis on looking to Christ. There's no emphasis on on sanctification. So you know what? I am failing in these ways, but the good news is that I'm being sanctified because Mm -hmm. of what the Lord has done for me. Looking to Christ, I mean, we all, you know, every day I'm failing and I need to remind myself to look to Christ to fix my eyes on Jesus, and it's really more of a self reliance than on a Christ reliance.
0: Exactly, and I uh, so I, what I would like to do with this statement, "I am enough," is just turn it into "He is enough."
1: That's perfect. I like that. that That's a that's a good um, response to that. So the Lord is enough because he's he is working in your life. Mm-hmm. He is. Um, He's comforting you in difficult times. He's forgiving you when you fail.
0: And I trust that He's working in my heart to sanctify me. So on days when I've done a terrible job and I'm down at the end of the day, what I should do is look to Christ and trust that He is sanctifying me and trust that He will continue to grow me and complete the good work that He started with me.
1: Amen. And we know he's faithful to do that, so we can trust him. One of the examples one of the gals uh, mentioned, and I am definitely no expert on Alcoholics Anonymous AA, but she said that uh, she knew somebody that was in AA. And so she looked through the book, and, and she had some concerns that there was some, there was some moralistic therapeutic deism within AA. And I think specifically in seeking out your higher power. And she quoted something, step 11, sought through prayer and meditation to approve our conscious contact with God as we understood him praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And I think you, you know, I know that there are people out there who would say, you know, I was very benefited by AA and I'm sure that there's those stories. But I think the concern here is that within a program like AA and a couple of people told me stories from family members that were in rehab facilities that were even in Christian rehab facilities. And it was very much the same sort of thing where it was relying on your higher power. Whoever your higher power is will help you. Mm hmm.
0: And I don't have any experience with AA, but I do have a thought concerning this quote on step 11. This is just about the moralistic therapeutic deism in general, but it relates to this quote. It's very interesting that um, one of the basic beliefs of moralistic therapeutic deism is that God set the world up, but he doesn't really intervene that much. And at the same time, there is this idea improve our conscious contact with God. He doesn't intervene that much, except individually, very directly, personally. There's that. I can hitch in and connect with God that way. And so there's a a little bit of a Gnostic flavor going on there that I'm going to directly um, link up with God and get my, well, my extra knowledge. And, And this is right here. In the quote, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. And of course, we know that where we get our knowledge of His will for us is from His Word. He has told us in His Word what His um, will for us is, and that is to love Him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbor.
1: Another example somebody used, and this is not the first time it's come up. In fact, several people have messaged me probably over the last year and a half and said, can you please, please talk about this? And they said that they've seen this in multi-level marketing. And um, I've heard both the combination of the sort of thing that's in Rachel Hollis's book, uh, you know, picture what you want, you will acquire what it is, that whatever you set your mind to and, and then kind of a, you know, everything is to make you happy and fulfilled. And I'm not, I haven't really been super involved in any MLMs, but this is what I've heard. And I, let me just say, I'm not saying it's in all of them, but I've heard from multiple people that they've been concerned, even in ones that they're in and in products that they believe in, but they have been concerned with kind of a, a bent towards that. And even a couple gals told me that there's even talk about God. There's even talk about God, um, that God should be an important part of your life too. But it's more in this moralistic therapeutic deism instead of there being an absolute truth.
0: Yeah. And, and I also am not involved with any MLMs, but have heard the same concerns um, that you're talking about quite a few times that there is a—and and sometimes the concern is expressed that that even there are some that like to present themselves as a Christian sort of MLM, and then these types of things are being pushed within. So um, it's a little uh, discouraging to see that that is being conflated with Christianity.
1: Right. So some of the law of attraction— uh, sort of ideas, but within a Christian setting, which which we have talked about and seen before. You know, somebody else brought up a great one, and I'm, I'm glad she did. She said, at a previous church, sharing the gospel meant sharing about what Jesus has done in your life. It was about explaining how he cleaned up your behavior, made your life better, and that this person could have a better life with Jesus, which we've kind of talked about this, but this is a perfect example. She said, granted, we do find joy in Jesus, but with this method, the ultimate treasure was an easier life and eventually heaven. I was told in heaven, there will be my favorite food, favorite activity. Instead of the ultimate treasure being Jesus himself and really no gospel, no law and no gospel. Um, you know, I was thinking, I, I saw a video going around. I'm not going to say who it was, but it's somebody who's very, very liberal. And I saw a couple pe- people said, oh, this person really, really understands grace. And I said to myself, <laughs> I, I didn't comment this. I was <laughs> tempted. This person doesn't understand grace because this person doesn't understand law. There's <laughs> no grace if there's no problem.
0: <laughs> right, right.
1: It's not good news. Jesus loves you just the way you are and is going to improve your life. That's, that's not really a truthful message. It's good news that even though I'm a sinner that Christ died for me.
0: Right. And it's interesting um, in this story that this person is telling about um, a church that they were at. It really sticks out to me that they were told in heaven, there would be their favorite food, their favorite activity. And she uh, said other things that really goes right back to that idea that God exists, but he's there really to facilitate my pleasure and so the idea of heaven here is ultimately tailor-made pleasure.
1: Yeah, it's just more of making me happy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's what all of life is about, you know, and that's what God is about. He wants me to be happy.
0: And the lie here is that happiness is found in anything other than the Lord himself.
1: You know, I was talking to my brother-in-law this afternoon. I was telling him about this episode that we're going to do and he said you know this is really lies from the pit of hell <laughs> because people think that they are christians they think that they you know oh i go to church i'm a christian and yet they don't even know the gospel yeah and, i mean that that's almost to me a, a greater threat than false religions is people believing that they have the truth of Christianity and they don't have a clue about the the gospel.
0: Well, this last one talks about, um, it, it's a question, is moralistic therapeutic deism basically that everyone who says Jesus was a good example for us and that the main message of Christianity is love your neighbor. And um, I, I do think that that is a big part of it, that is a way that we see it worked out in in evangelical circles. And of course, we already talked about what would Jesus do um, and the main message of Christianity. I just want to make sure that we say it that you know the main message of Christianity is not love your neighbor. That is an outflow of the main message of Christianity. The main message of Christianity is that we have all sinned, we have all fallen short of God's law, and we all start from a place where we are dead in those sins. And we need Jesus Christ to make us alive. We need um, His completed work on the cross where He died for our sins. And we need His righteousness that only He can provide to make us right with God. That is the main message of Christianity. And when we grasp that and we trust in Jesus Christ, That is when we are enabled to love our neighbor.
1: That is so important because loving God and our neighbor is part of our sanctification. Mm -hmm. It is, um, and sanctification, as we've talked about before, is a work of God's free grace. It is something that the Lord is doing in our lives to um, help us to die unto sin and live unto Him. One thing I've seen, and you and I actually have experienced this in the last few weeks, is there's an, a wrong view of love mm-hmm. where people will say, you're being judgmental. That's not loving. Mm-hmm. That's not how Jesus was.
0: Right. It's the gospel of nice. Um, I don't care for what you said. It wasn't nice. Therefore, it's not what I think Jesus would want you to be doing.
1: We talked about discernment. If you haven't listened to that episode, please do. Because in scripture, we're called to discernment. We're called to judge right and wrong. And, And sometimes loving is confronting our brother of sin or pointing out what is true and what is false.
0: Right. If I know that someone who I love believes a false gospel I can't think of a better way to show them love than to tell them the true gospel.
1: Yep, I have several resources that I'm going to recommend. Uh, Michael Horton did an a message at a Ligonier conference on this subject, and I re-listened to it this week. I listened to it before, and it's about moralistic therapeutic deism, and it's just excellent. I'm going to link it in the episode notes. It's on YouTube. Definitely check it out. And then I think it may have been at that same Ligonier conference. They did a QA, I think it's 10 to 15 minutes long, where they talked to Michael Horton about this also. I'm going to also recommend the book, Crisis Christianity. Crisis Christianity is a book by Michael Horton. And one of our admins said it was like one of the best books she read in the last year. And I I want to read it again because it's been years since I read it. And it's just an excellent book. And there's actually three books that go together. That's the first one. I think the second one is The Gospel Driven Life. And the third one is The Gospel... Commission, I believe. And The Gospel-Driven Life is really, uh, you know, we're all familiar with Rick Warren's The Purpose-Driven Life. And I think that in The Purpose-Driven Life, we do have some moralistic therapeutic deism. Mm -hmm. What it comes down to, the reason why Michael Horton's first book is called Christless Christianity, because moralistic therapeutic deism is a Christless Christianity. There's no sin, there's no need for Christ to come and be our Savior. And this we're surrounded by this. In fact, I'm gonna. I, every, each one of us. I would be surprised if there's anyone listening to us right now that does not know somebody who is who fits into this moralistic therapeutic deism. And what we're not telling you to do is go and bang them over the head and say you're just a moralistic therapeutic deist and just <laughs> do not have the truth. But what it is a reminder to each of us is is to preach the gospel. So uh, before we go, just a few things that I wanted to um, mention. Again, um, I'll link Sola Gratia Apparel. Uh, they have some really great non-cheesy Christian shirts. They're actually <laughs> I, I can't wait to get mine because I think they're like great- I got the five solos one, and I think they're they'll be great conversation starters. And then uh, secondly, theology gals merchandise you know we got the we got the long sleeves and the hoodies and i know that we've had some people ordering those so just a reminder and the mugs um we have mugs in a gazillion colors i tried to choose quite a few different ones so everyone could find what they wanted and lots of different shirt styles and if you would like to support us we do have some extra expenses coming up and uh you can support us on patreon so you can support us monthly a few dollars a month i'm trying to set up on paypal if anyone wants to give us a one time donation but i just i wanted to just quickly say thank you so much to everybody that does support us i'm just very grateful and I don't say it enough how much I appreciate the support that that you guys give us and for those who cannot support us monthly we of course need the prayers and we just appreciate the the messages that you send us the being active in our group and emails and everything so we just we really appreciate everyone that just listens so well thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you next week